I am excited, um, not that I'm not preaching today, but I'm excited that uh, Matt Q is preaching. Matt Q is our uh, pastoral intern. Um, if you've not heard uh, him before teach, he's an excellent teacher. He just wrapped up our series, uh, Revelation series. Uh, it happens Sunday uh, evenings. Um, and it, it was excellent. And I want to let you know that uh, it's on our podcast. If, if you missed it, um, you can listen along on our podcast. You can find that either on our website or on, uh, on Apple's podcast. But it's really, really, really good. So let's, uh, let's bring up Matt. He's, a, uh, he's in his first year at Multnomah Seminary. He's got uh, three years total there. He just finished up his undergrad last year. So let's give it up for Matt. Good morning. It's a, uh, a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this morning to preach God's Word. It's exciting as we start this new series, as Gary mentioned, through the book of Samuel. Uh, first, I'd like to start off, though, with a question. Do you believe that God cares for you? Do you believe that God is involved with or even concerned about your life? Those of us here who profess to be Christians believe that God exists, and I'd assume that we would at least desire that the answer to this question is yes, that God does care for us. Hopefully, we believe and live as if this is true. But if God cares about us, how are we to respond when we encounter hardship, trials, pain, and suffering? The text that we'll be looking at today, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 11, uh, uncovers for us that God does truly care for us. The Lord is concerned with every individual. He is involved with every area of our lives, so much so that he might even bring about difficult and painful situations, which ultimately are to accomplish his far more glorious purposes. Also, in this text, we are instructed in how to respond to these situations. We are shown what and who we should hope in. The primary message of our passage today is this. We can trust in the God who is sovereign over all and knows our needs, meeting them in Jesus the Messiah. This is our truth statement. It's up on the screen. We can trust in the God who is sovereign over all and who knows our needs, meeting them in the, need, in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. So this morning, as we launch into this new series, which over the next four months we'll be going through First and Second Samuel, it will be helpful if we lay some groundwork for approaching the book. The Bible is, from start to finish, a coherent, a unified story. And so as we approach the books of First and Second Samuel, it's necessary that we understand the storyline so far. Uh, it would be helpful if we all had just read the books of Genesis through Judges, but here is uh, an extremely condensed version for you. I do suggest you read, the, read them in full. They're great. It's a good book. Uh, what happens essentially is in Genesis, God forms a covenant with a man named Abraham. He promises to bless him and create from him a people who belong to God, who share a special relationship with him. 
fast forwarding through fast forwarding through the book of Genesis, we can trace this seed, this line of Abraham down through people like Jacob and Isaac. Eventually, this line of Abraham, now the nation of Israel, is in Egypt, where they are held captive, they're enslaved. In an outstanding act of deliverance and redemption, God frees them from their bondage. He delivers them and leads them out into the wilderness where he takes them to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, he creates another covenant with them. God is now revealed to his people as Yahweh. He promises to bless them, to lead them into the promised land if they are committed to him and they uphold the terms of his covenant, the laws given through Moses. Quickly, though, the people rebel. However, after 40 years, God does lead his people into the promised land under the leadership of a man named Joshua, And in the land, the Israelites are, again, supposed to be a holy and faithful nation who obey their God, who observe his commandments. But unsurprisingly, God's people once again fail, big time. The book of Judges details this flagrant idolatry and rampant immorality into which the nation had descended The book's repeated refrain is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's with this disheartening phrase that the book of Judges ends. And it is here that the books of Samuel begin. One quick note as we begin these books, the books that we refer to as 1st and 2nd Samuel originally were composed as one single book Together, they tell one story. They have a common theme and message. This is why we're going to be going through both 1st and 2nd Samuel. They belong together. You'll hear me refer to both of them as uh, the book of Samuel or just Samuel. It's a single, single book. We don't know who wrote Samuel. Uh, the work is anonymous. It couldn't have been Samuel himself. It means the title is a little misleading. misleading uh, since Samuel died about halfway through The book, he couldn't have wrote it all. The book of Samuel would have then been put together after all of these events had occurred, similar to the book of Joshua, Judges, and Kings. These books are known as the former prophets in Hebrew. They were likely composed during the period of exile, during the time in which Israel was facing God's judgment, they were recording what happened back then for the good of those living right now. And so though they tell us about Israel's past, they do so through the lens that is also focused on the future. The story and history of Israel are thus told from the later perspective of the prophets who already know the outcome. They're eagerly anticipating what is to come important to keep all of this in mind as we approach the book. Samuel contains many unforgettable stories, some, some of the most famous stories from the Old Testament. It also has a memorable cast of main characters, Samuel and Saul and David. These three provide positive examples for us of devotion and obedience to the Lord, and yet they also portray negative Examples of rebellion, sin, 
and failure. Ultimately, though, these characters are not the main focus of the book. Samuel is not a bi biography about the prophet Samuel, not even of Saul or of David. Most basically, the book is about God. The author's primary concern is to display how Yahweh, the Lord of history, works out his plan of salvation and blessing despite the failure and sin of human beings. The author intends to show us how God faithfully guides history through his human agents so that his divine purposes might be accomplished. Most importantly, the book looks forward to the promised messianic king who would bring God's kingdom and blessing to all the nations, ruling his people with justice and righteousness. The story of Israel did not find its climax in the book of Samuel. At the end, even despite various bright spots, it's clear that uh, this is not the, the climax, that things uh, are not what they should be. Judges shows just how desperately God's people need wise, faithful leaders. Samuel continues this, but also delivers a hint towards the solution. Along with the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, Samuel makes clear that neither Saul nor David nor any of Israel's other later kings were able to solve Israel's inherent spiritual problem. What was needed, or rather, who was needed, was the true king. Remember again the context that we're dealing with. The original readers would have lived during a time of great discouragement, of even exile, an age of disobedience to God's covenant, much of this disobedience and even the problem of exile itself was a crisis in godly leadership. What the original readers were hoping in and looking forward to was the future Messiah. And so thus, the book of Samuel is about this Messiah who we know to be King Jesus. At its core, Samuel is a book of reversals. Throughout the narrative, we find example after example of God abasing the proud while exalting the humble. When all hope seems lost, the sovereign Lord powerfully turns things around. In fact, the entire Bible is a book of redemptive reversals, telling the story of the triune God who providentially guides all things in accordance with his plan to reverse the curse of sin and death upon his people and his creation. This major theme is the reason that we've titled our series in the book of Samuel, The God of Reversals. We will see this at work in every passage that we look at, including our passage for today. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 1 of Samuel. In the very first verse, we meet an Israelite man named Elkanah. Judging from the details of his location and his family history, he seems to have been a noteworthy and respectable person. We also meet his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. It's at the end of verse 2, though, that the narrator unveils the conflict present in this narrative. Peninnah had children 
and Hannah had no children. The mention of Hannah having no children should immediately bring to mind the biblical pattern of barren women. For instance, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. In this story, Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. He later married Panina due to the fact that Hannah could not bear children. She was not able to provide him with offspring. The negative consequences of this polygamous marriage are apparent. It's not surprising at all that this arrangement provoked great jealousy, enmity, and relational tension. Nevertheless, this is the setting that we find ourselves in in the onset of this book. There's one man, two wives, one has children, the other does not. The tensions are high. Verse 3 fills in some of the background information of this story by mentioning Elkanah's annual pilgrimage to this site, Shiloh. We should notice that he and his family were obedient. They were submissive to the Mosaic law. They observed instructions like those found in Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 7. Throughout the chapter, Elkanah and Hannah are portrayed as righteous and obedient, which makes the present situation all the more puzzling and problematic. The devout family was full of discord. In verses 4 through 8, the first scene commences. The words on the day zoom in on the report of a particular occasion when the family went to worship. As was prescribed in the law, when making these kinds of offerings, the worshiper would eat portions of the sacrifice. They would have a feast. And so each time they worshiped at Shiloh, Elkanah would distribute portions among his family. To him, Hannah in particular, though, he would give a double portion or a choice portion because, as verse 5 says, he loved her even though Yahweh had closed her womb. The fact that Elkanah played favorites surely did not help the tension between the two wives. Likely out of her own anger and jealousy, Panina, who's referred to as the rival wife, would provoke, vex, and taunt Hannah solely to irritate her because she had children and Hannah did not. This continued to happen year after year. We learned something important in verses 6 and 7. Twice, it stated that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. As a reminder, when you see the word Lord in your Bible, in all caps, it represents the divine name, Yahweh. This is the covenant name, the personal name of God that he revealed to his people. Often it's used in connection with the special relationship between Israel and God, but here we discover that Yahweh, the covenant God, whom Hannah regularly worshipped and sacrificed to, was the cause of her infertility. In all of the other narratives of the barren women, the emphasis is God on the, uh, as the one who opens wombs. Yet here, in contrast, the, uh, the focus is on God as the one who closed Hannah's womb. Will he reverse this tragic situation? We should expect so, since God has a history of overturning barrenness, with the result always being a special child, one who is key to the biblical story and to the plan of God. Think of the examples of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, who were so important to carrying on the line of Abraham. Even in the New Testament, John the Baptist, all these are, are important characters. 
Why then is there this stress on Yahweh closing Hannah's womb? Why not just record that she was barren and then when God opens her womb as is expected, just tell us that he provided the child and that God opened the womb. But what we find in this story is a woman who is desperate, who has reached the end of her rope. She is depressed, hopeless, exhausted, engulfed in a paradox where she continually goes to worship her God, yet is incessantly provoked and taunted by her adversary. Worst of all, her own God, Yahweh, has caused this. But by showing us that Yahweh stands as as the cause of this problem, we are pointed to the only one who can resolve it, God himself. This exposes the true conflict in this story. Beyond the surface-level tension found between the two wives, the ultimate tension lies between Hannah and Yahweh, her God. He is truly the God of her affliction in that he is both the one who brought about this trial, is her only hope during the suffering, and is the only one who can resolve it. Though her husband expresses concern and love for her, he does not ultimately understand her sorrow, as we see in verse 8. Indeed, he cannot understand. He's unable to solve this problem. It's between Hannah and her God. The situation has come to its boiling point. Something has to happen. Hannah must do something. And so, to God she goes. In verse 9 and 10, We are introduced to a new scene. Deeply distressed, Hannah rises, weeping, and she offers both a prayer and a vow to the Lord. Her affliction has brought her near to God as she cries out for him to act, appealing for divine action on her behalf. It's noteworthy that she addresses God as the Lord of hosts. This, in the Bible, is God's battle name. It speaks to his power and his authority over all things, over the earthly armies of his people Israel and over the heavenly hosts. This chapter marks the very first usage of this title in the Bible, and it is found on the lips of a desperate but devoted woman in prayer. This is because only the powerful, mighty Lord of hosts is able to change Hannah's situation. Notice how Hannah refers to herself in this address. Address. Three times she calls herself your servant. Hannah is humble and committed to her God. She makes a courageous vow to him, promising that if the Lord does provide her with a son, she will dedicate that son back to him to serve him for life. And so in verse 12 this character, Eli, who was mentioned earlier, is reintroduced. While, Anna was pray- while Hannah sorry, was praying before Yahweh, pouring out her heart and soul in his presence, she was evidently doing so silently. She was speaking in her heart, as verse 13 says. Upon observing her, Eli comes to the absurd conclusion that she was drunk. So in the next verse, he speaks up, he rebukes Hannah for this supposed drunkenness. Really, he ends up making a fool out of himself with this outrageous and offensive assumption. How ironic that the priest of God, charged with leading and promoting the worship 
of Yahweh doesn't identify true devotion when it's right in front of his face. After Hannah counters the faulty presumptions, Eli corrects his mistake. And in verse 17, we find his response. He says, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him. This statement of blessing grants assurance that Hannah's request will be granted. This is the climax and turning point of the entire story. It's reached here in verse 18 when Hannah leaves with a deep contentment and confidence. She's encouraged. It says her face was no longer sad. Verse 19 then marks the beginning of this major shift. As the family returns home, Elkanah and Hannah make love, and we are told that Yahweh remembered her. No, God does not have a faulty memory. The verb remember is loaded with significance. It indicates that Yahweh is about to act. Whenever the covenant-making God remembers, when he remembers Hannah here, it suggests that the initiation of a new activity in the outworking of his sovereign plan is occurring. We see the same thing, for example, back with Noah in Genesis 8, with God's people, the Israelites in Exodus 2, and significantly with, the other, with another barren woman, Rachel, in Genesis 30. In verse 20, Hannah at last receives her desire. She is given a son. She bears a child whom she names Samuel, saying, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, this birth was not simply the result of Hannah and Elkanah trying one more time. No, this was the sovereign work of God. This son would go on to be the kingmaker. He was the one who would anoint and who would, would help establish the very first king, Saul, and then later his successor, David. It is hard to exaggerate the importance of the establishment of kingdom, of the, of the kingship within Israel, especially under David, as it relates to the carrying out of God's plan of salvation. This is clear from the very first verse in the New Testament uh, of Matthew's gospel, where it's written, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The seed or offspring promised to Abraham back in Genesis that finds its realization in Jesus of Nazareth goes straight through the line of King David. Without Samuel, there would have been no King David. The final verses of the chapter show how Hannah initially remains behind for a time in order to wean her son, but she does follow through on her vow. Once she had weaned him, she takes him up to Shiloh. She brings along a remarkable offering of bulls, flour, and wine. When presenting the boy to Eli, she affirms that Yahweh has indeed made good on what Eli had said. Back in verse 17, Hannah, Hannah proclaims that this, for this child I prayed, and Yahweh has granted me my petition that I made to him. Because of this, that she then continues, I have lent him to Yahweh, the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to Yahweh. And with that, the scene closes. 
Chapter 1 leaves off with Elkanah and his family worshiping at Shiloh. And in 2.11, the story ends with the family returning to their home while Samuel stays with Eli in uh, the presence of God, ministering to him. Before we reach the conclusion, though, the story is interrupted with a sizable poem. Hannah prays for a second time, but now it comes from the depths of joy and thanks rather than from despair. In fact, what we find here doesn't seem as much like a prayer of thanksgiving as it does a song of praise, a hymn directed to the sovereign Lord. This song in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is vital for understanding the entire story here. This is because in Scripture, when you find uh, poetry located within a larger narrative or story, it's one of the primary strategies that a biblical author might use to draw out their main ideas, their theological hot points. It brings out what is most important. On a larger scale, Hannah's song is central to the entire book of Samuel. The author has brilliantly crafted and structured this book in order to communicate his message. And one of the ways that he did this was by framing the entire narrative with two poems. The beginning, we have Hannah's in 1 Samuel 2. And in the very end, we have David's in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. Hannah's song serves as a thematic and structural introduction to the entire book. It's a poetic preview, if you will. It shows us what is going to happen in the story to come. It gives us a lens through which to read the rest of the book. The primary themes of the song are repeated throughout the entire book, and they're found again at the very end in David's song. These main themes are the Lord's holy sovereignty, the reversal of human fortunes, redemptive reversal, and kingship in the Messiah. The song begins in verse 1 with personal emotion. Hannah rejoices, interestingly, not in overcoming Panina, not in the reversal of her barrenness, not in the provision of a son, but she rejoices in the salvation of the Lord. The word horn refers to that of an animal. It symbolizes strength and pride and power. Here, Hannah praises the one who brought her dignity and deliverance. Verse 2 majestically proclaims, There is none holy like Yahweh, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Yahweh is holy. That is, he is completely and utterly devoted to his glory, to his covenant, and to his people. He's absolutely unrivaled. Who can compare with this God? The Lord is a rock, meaning that he is dependable and unwavering, a trustworthy refuge and a source of protection. In light of this, also, uh, those who hear the song, including us as we read it this morning, are admonished to humble ourselves before the Holy One. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed, says verse 3. Yahweh is the all-knowing, omniscient God who judges 
and evaluates all without distinction. In verses 4 and 5, we find a poetic expression of this surprising reversal and overturn. Here, the motif of the reversal of human fortunes is made so clear as Hannah uh, contrasts in verse 4, the fate of the mighty with that of the feeble. In verse 5, she juxtaposes the fortune of those with plenty and with many children against those who have no food and no children. The agent of this reversal is obviously the Lord. He alone is holy. He is sovereign. He holds everyone's fate in his mighty hand. He reverses human fortunes and situations according to his own will and his own pleasure. In verses 6 and 7, Yahweh is explicitly made the subject of these actions. Hannah exults in God's possession of total authority over the entire course of human life. He maintains control over the abode of the dead, Sheol, and over the living. This line expresses hope for the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, as Yahweh has the power to both extinguish and restore life. What's more, God, he is the one who controls the material and social life of humans. He promotes some to prominence and demotes others to insignificance. As the first half of verse 8 so clearly shows, it is the sovereign Lord who reverses human fortunes. He alone is the author of redemptive reversals. The final two verses of this song are decidedly eschatological. If you were at the Revelation study, you know that vocabulary word. Uh, what I mean is that they are entirely future-focused. God will continually and protect his faithful ones, not allowing them to fall. The wicked, on the other hand, will be cut off. They will face judgment and punishment. The reason for this is because not by might shall a person prevail, in verse 9. This essentially summarizes the message of the entire song. Power does not equal success. Instead, the ones who prevail are those who rely on God. The only hope for escaping darkness is through faithful devotion to the Lord. Verse 10 reads, the adversaries of Yahweh will be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This eternal, sovereign creator God will one day crush his enemies, intervening by thundering against them from his heavenly dwelling. How will he do this? Here, we see that it will be by giving strength to his king and by exalting or raising the horn of his anointed. But who is this king, this anointed one? In Hebrew, the word for anointed is Messiah. That's right. This verse declares that the Lord will exalt the horn of his Messiah. Note also the phrase, Exalt the horn, which was found at the very beginning of Hannah's song. It's the same exact words. This is another bracketing, another what is called an inclusio. The beginning and the end. The poem 
ends on the same note. What this emphasizes is that the exaltation of a horn is essential to the entire song. The raising of a horn is what the entire song is all about. In the Bible, especially later in the Psalms, the horn here is connected to God's Messiah, his anointed one. Historically, when Hannah sang this song, no king existed in Israel. He hadn't been established yet. Who then was she talking about? Was she referring to Saul and David who would come years later? Or was she looking forward to the true king, the Messiah, Jesus? The book of Samuel as a whole points to the fact that Hannah here sings, prophesies, really, about Jesus Christ. In her song to Yahweh, Hannah was singing a birthday song, not about Samuel, but about the child that was to be born in Bethlehem. Amazingly, Hannah was not on her own in expressing this messianic hope. She was following in the same pattern as the scriptures before. We see this all throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It speaks clearly about the Messiah, especially in the, in the sections that are poetic, in the poetry, the songs. Genesis 49, Exodus 15, Numbers 24. I mentioned earlier that the entire book of Samuel is enclosed by these two poems, one of Hannah, the other of David. These poems together envelop the entire narrative, and together they reframe David's story of the past as a description, or a depiction rather, of the future hope of the Messiah and his kingdom. David's psalm and his final words echo the themes of Hannah's. They echo the themes of the entire book. This connection is, is very apparent in 2 Samuel 22, starting in verse 47. Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. Great salvation he brings to his king, and he shows covenant loyalty to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Here David also sings about the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Messiah, but he's not simply talking about himself. The David of the past was anticipating the David of the future, the greater David. If this book was written after David's lifetime and the people in exile are reading it, they would be hoping in and longing for the same exact things that Hannah and David both sing about. Clearly, Hannah understood the birth of her son Samuel as more than simply her personal vindication and blessing. Her horn had been raised and she looked expectantly to the raising of the horn of the Lord's Messiah, the Christ. Hannah's words in this song thus reach far beyond her own immediate circumstances. 
God's answer to her prayer became an occasion for Hannah to exult in the eternal and universal care of God for the oppressed, became an occasion for her to exult in God's promise of a future Messiah. This hope is the story of the entire Bible, down until the day when that long-expected Jesus, the Messiah, arrives on earth. In summary, Hannah's song concludes with a prophetic word, with a call for Yahweh himself, the incomparable one, the holy one, the mighty rock, the great reversing one, to raise up and establish his future messianic king. This perspective is key to unlocking the rest of the book. Hannah here calls for the coming of the Messiah. Imagine what it would have been like for Hannah in her situation. Try and picture the pain she would have felt, the sorrow that must have gripped her, the questions she must have had. Some of you may not even need to imagine. You know full well the pain of longing for a child and yet facing infertility. In fact, it shouldn't be hard for any single one of us to Think of a situation, something we've experienced or we're facing now that is emotionally, physically, and or spiritually agonizing. Maybe it's that door that closes to the dream you've desired for so long, or the struggle of watching a loved one suffer, or the heartbreak of rejection and singleness, or the desperate longing for a friend or family member to know Christ. Hannah certainly felt this type of pain. Her character rightly, rightfully becomes a source of identification for any one of God's people in distress and hardship, especially those who suffer for seemingly no reason. What then is our hope in the midst of suffering, of pain and sorrow? First, we must acknowledge that human history is not an impersonal roller coaster of political trends and social pressures and economic forces. It is under the absolute control of the infinite, eternal, and personal God. Nothing can, can thwart the Lord's sovereignty. The Lord is able to achieve his overarching purposes for his people and for his creation while also being both aware of and committed to caring for the unique situations of every individual. We need also to recognize that God may indeed create, ordain, and orchestrate suffering, tragedy, and hardship in order to accomplish his purposes. These purposes, however, are perfect. We're only able to properly evaluate and appreciate them if we keep the end in sight, if we view them in light of the end results of God's ultimate plan. Yahweh can and will use any and every situation to bring about glory for his name and grace for his people. The entire first chapter of the book of Samuel details one of the countless biblical examples of God's response to human prayer and his involvement with people's lives. In this way, 
the message of this chapter and even the book of Samuel as a whole can be summarized well by Paul's words in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God alone can intervene and transform in the face of human despair and helplessness. So be encouraged by this. If the sovereign Lord can ordain an incident in a woman's ordinary family life to be such an important step in his eternal plan of salvation, then surely each day, each situation in your own life has the opportunity to be no less significant in the scheme of God's plan and purpose. Our mighty Redeemer delights in doing extraordinary things through extraordinary people just like he did through a certain man of Ramathayim Zophim in verse 1 and his barren wife, Hannah, and just as he did through a virgin named Mary and her husband, Joseph, her husband-to-be Joseph, who was from the house of David. So I ask you, what seemingly hopeless situation exists in your life that can only be transformed by the grace of God who is working all things together for his glory? What tragedies and sorrows are present which uh, require God alone to mend, to use, to strengthen your faith? faith? What trials are you going through that require his deliverance which he aims to mature you as a believer through? In all of these situations, God draws us into greater dependence upon him, into more fervent prayer, and into confident reliance upon him alone. We would do well then to follow the example and faithful illustration of Hannah, who despite suffering, persecution, and tragedy, leaned full force into the one who could save her. This text offers an invitation for us to emulate her in our actions, especially in prayer. No matter how formidable our circumstances are, no matter how hopeless and, uh, and, and tragic things might appear, Hannah's story is a beautiful portrait of relentless devotion, of extreme humility, and fierce commitment to prayer. May we be like Hannah, who, convinced of God's care for her and his involvement in her life, lived and prayed as if such things were so, leaving an example that even Eli, the priest of God, could learn from. Not only do we learn from this passage that God cares for us and actively participates in all areas of our life, we are also shown how to respond in cases of testing and trial. Hannah provides a model of one who responds rightly with praise and worship. She teaches us how to sing, and her words should transform for believers where hope is found. Hannah's story and her song point the way forward for us. Hope is found not in the pursuit of power, but in total devotion to the Lord and submission to his sovereign reign. Her words should uh, transform our imaginations and our perspectives. Additionally, Hannah's song and the entire book of Samuel 
clarifies the hope and trust that we are to have in Yahweh, which must be placed in both him and his anointed. Our trust must be in the Messiah, the one through whom we find salvation. Hannah didn't physically see the Messiah. She uh, couldn't. He wouldn't arrive on the scene for many, many years. Yet she did see Jesus with the eyes of faith, proclaiming it to be true and living as if it was. Faith, according to the book of Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. What you and I need then is a vision check. Are we observing the world and our lives with eyes of faith? In Luke's gospel, another miraculous mother sings a song. This time it's Mary. Her hymn in Luke 1, 46 through 55, it's referred to as the Magnificat. It's obviously dependent not only on the themes and words of Hannah's song, but on the underlying perspective that Hannah possessed. The mother of the Messiah whom Hannah spoke about embodied and lived out Hannah's vision. Let us then do so as well. Hannah's song becomes our song as we find in Jesus the fulfillment of God's promises and the means through which he will redeem and right the world. My friends, if you belong to the Lord, you can be assured that he cares for you, that he loves you. The Father created you. He continually sustains you. And ultimately, he sent his son to die for your sins, to redeem you so that the spirit might fill you and regenerate you. Let us hold tightly to this truth firmly believing that our God is sovereign, that he loves us. May this vision rule our lives. May this truth hold captive our thoughts, desires, and actions. May it lead us to worship our Savior in both spirit and in truth. Brothers and sisters, we can trust in the sovereign God who knows our needs and meets them in Jesus the Messiah. We can trust that the one who is Lord over all knows us, cares for us, and has provided for us through his only Son. So then let us follow in the footsteps of Hannah and fiercely commit our lives to worship and magnifying Yahweh and his anointed king, Jesus. Please pray with me. Gracious, infinite, matchless Lord, we rejoice in your salvation and in your redemptive reversals. You are the Holy One. There is none like you, none besides you, none that compares to you. You know our needs. You care for us. You have truly given strength to your king and exalted the horn of your Messiah. Would you impress on our hearts this reality? Bestow upon us eyes of faith that grasp tightly to your promises. Humble our stubborn hearts that we might trust in you, submit to you, and adore you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, 
our unchanging rock and our eternal King. Amen.